0: I want to just say greetings to those of you that might be visiting online. Um, I want to, especially this morning, say greetings to those of you that are upstairs in the classroom, because uh, oftentimes you might feel like you're neglected, but we love you, we appreciate you, we know that you're there, and um, we're just glad that you're here and part of what's going on. And of course, we're glad everyone is here also, right? And I know some of you are here visiting for the first time or relatively new to us here at Gateway, and um, I want to welcome you. And one of the things I think we want to make sure is clear that we are unashamedly about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're not going to pull any fast ones. There it is in the in the front and center. We're about Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save us from our sins, and we're committed to the proclamation of his word. Now, what we typically do as a church is we work our way through a book of the Bible. Right now, we are in the book of Exodus, and we are in Exodus chapter 32, and we're at verse uh, verses um, uh, 7 through 14. So we have uh, Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14. I would invite you to stand with me if you would, please, and um, we're going to read this text, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us this morning. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may, uh, may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac. And Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Lord, we come to you this morning asking for your help. We are a needy people. Just even as we sang this this morning, Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us as we open up your word. Have mercy on us as we seek to understand what it is that you desire of us. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, what we, what we have not, Lord, would you give us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us. And Lord, we, we ask that this morning, and I ask in particular, that I would simply be your messenger, that you, through your Holy Spirit, by virtue of your word, would would speak to us, to your people, and fashion and shape us to be like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's some passages you come to, and as a pastor that I come to, that I am extremely humbled by. Now, understand, I'm always humbled when I come to the word of God because God is always at work. But there are some that you come to that you're humbled by just because of the magnitude of what is there. I think last week as we studied verses 1 through 6, I was greatly humbled to see just the, the heart of idolatry that was revealed in that text. But now as we come to this text, I'm humbled once again by what we see. Why has God included verses 7 through 14 through the pen of Moses for us? It is in particular to teach the second generation, that original audience that this book is written for, the nation of Israel, and ultimately God's people, the church, that they and we are a sinful people in need of a caring and determined mediator. See, Israel has Moses as their mediator. Christians have Christ as their mediator. And we are called to come before God to intercede on behalf of stiff-necked people we meet, we work with, or we live with. And this text is screaming at us that all those stiff-necked people are depraved and thoroughly deserving of God's wrath, that through the mediation of Christ they can find mercy. And it is by application and implication, friends, I call for Christians to step in and intercede for their friends, for their acquaintances, for co-workers, for, for neighbors, for parents, for siblings and children who stubbornly reject Christ and his gospel. And so this morning I would like for us to, to, to look at the heart of this text, how God's mediator intercedes for his people. Now this text comes on the heels of Israel's impatient behavior while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And if you remember back in uh, Exodus chapter 24, you want to turn there, Exodus 24 and verse 13. It's just a few pages back. Moses gives clear instructions to the people. We read in verse 13, so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return for you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. In other words, Moses is saying, look, I am going up to the mountain, but Aaron and Hur, I'm leaving things in charge or you're in charge of, of, of the people now. But you wait here, and we're coming back. But what do we find? We find that the people, because they haven't seen Moses for 40 days, nearly 40 days at that point in time, they, they, they conspired together to create and worship their representation of Yahweh in the form of a golden calf. And to attribute to that, to that calf their miraculous... <laughs> miraculous... Miraculous... Deliverance from Egypt. And it was an act, friends, of blasphemy. Of idolatry that ultimately led into sexual immorality. So what we saw last week was that their faithlessness led to their impatience. Which led to their idolatry. Which led to their immorality. But now, we're taken behind the scenes. We're allowed to see how the events at the foot of the mountain look from God's perspective, to notice what it is that God sees. And now the rest of this text is divided into three sections the evidence, the verdict, and the appeal. Let's look first of all at the evidence, verses seven through eight. What does God see? He sees his people are behaving in ways that they shouldn't be behaving, how they're rebelling, and how they are committing blasphemy. He sees their faithlessness. He sees their impatience. He sees their idolatry and ultimately their immorality. Specifically, the text tells us three things that God sees. And God tells Moses, this is what God sees. First of all, they have corrupted themselves. They have corrupted. He looks down and he sees that they have corrupted themselves. Other translations say it this way. They have brought their lives to ruin. They have already stopped obeying the Lord. They have sinned and rejected God. They have corrupted themselves. Secondly, they have turned aside quickly out of the way. I mean, how quickly? I mean, it was under 40 days. How quickly they've abandoned their commitment that they made in chapter 24 at the bottom of the mountain. God had given them instructions, but they've hurried off the path. Third, ultimately they created an idol to worship. And they worshiped this golden calf. They made sacrifices to this golden calf. They they actually attributed their deliverance to this golden calf. God is seeing all of it. And he's telling Moses, this is what I have seen. There's no shades of gray here. This is black and white. What is happening at the foot of the mountain here is blatant idolatry by their behavior. Friends, they have violated at least four of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. They were worshiping a golden calf and many other gods. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, that is in the water. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And of course, they, have, they gathered gold and out of that gold, they created this golden calf, a clear violation of the second commandment. Commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This happened when they merged the pagan worship with the Lord's worship and attributed the whole thing to the Lord. It's a violation of the third commandment when we synchronize the world with God. He hates it. It's a violation. And commandment number six, ultimately you shall not commit adultery and the violation here is is implied by the expression, and they rose up to play. It's a euphemism for sexual immorality. And friends, it's worth noting uh, and, and looking at Exodus chapter 20 and how it begins. Just notice, if you would, please, again, a few pages back, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house the house of slavery. The exact same claim that they are making is the claim that God made in chapter 20. So they crafted the golden calf and they claimed that it and the many gods were responsible for bringing them up out of Egypt. They're slandering God. They're blaspheming him. Friends, the evidence as God sees it is that Israel is guilty of corruption, They're guilty of apostasy. They're guilty of idolatry. And friends, it's a reminder of a couple of things. And just think through these things if if you're able to here. It is, first of all, a reminder that the law cannot save. That any man who tries to keep the law will always fall short That the purpose of the law was to reveal man's sinfulness and his need of an alien mediator that could stand in the place and do what they could never do. The purpose of the law was to reveal our depravity. This is the evidence that we need to see, friends, that we are all just like the Israelites here. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 wants his readers to learn from Israel to be warned about not wandering off into idolatry. Just listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6-7. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. God's giving this to us. He's, he's recording it for us. It's what, it's what the Apostle is saying. He's given it so that we would not wander away into evil. Do not be idolaters, he says, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And at the end of this this listing of other sins that Israel committed in the wilderness, we're, we're told here in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. And what we need to see then is our sinfulness takes us away from obeying God's law. Secondly, it's a reminder that when we believe that God has lost sight of us, that we tend to lose sight of him. Now, I want you to hear that statement. When we believe that God has lost sight of us, it's not that he has lost sight of us, but when we believe that he has lost sight of us, we tend to lose sight of him. We start to measure this world by our feelings and what we see rather than anchoring ourselves in what God has said and what he has promised. And when we do that, friends, we are on dangerous ground and we will begin to drift and to find substitutes to fill the void. Now, hear hear this. This is not a void of clear instructions from God. God has spoken. But the thing is, we've lost sight of him because we're no longer believing what he says. And so now we have this emptiness that we need to fill. And this void is created by our own faithlessness. And when there is a void due to our faithlessness, you can be sure that it will be filled by something. Something that makes you feel good. Ice cream, chocolate binge TV watching, pornography, sports, whatever it might be, you're going to find something that fills the void, makes you feel good. You're going to find something you can see, that you can measure, that you can put your confidence in. You're going to find something that appeals to your senses and something also that you can bow down to in your heart and attribute all of your success to. So rather than Believing what God says in His Word that's pushed aside. And it's filled in with something else that is based on your feelings, your desires that make you feel good. What what fills that void? Well, as we saw last week, they can be good things that become ultimate things, right? Money, pleasure, relationships, hobbies, popularity, pursuits and projects, family, children political ideologies, even church and ministry. All of that and more. So God comes to Moses and gives the evidence about Israel's behavior, how their faithlessness has led to their impatience, has led to their idolatry, and has led to their immorality. But now I want you to notice the verdict that he gives. This is verses 9 and 10. I want you to notice that it begins here by God saying, I have seen this people. section begins with God seeing. Israel failed to see God and it resulted in their impatience. But get this, the whole time when Israel thought that God had forgotten them, he was looking. He was watching. He knew. Every step they took, every move that they made, God was watching. He had not forgotten them. God doesn't forget his children. And it's a reminder of what we read in the summary statement in chapter 2 in verses 30 or 23 through 25. This is what it says, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. God is fully aware of what's going on with his people. He's not shocked. This text tells us he's seeing clearly what's happening. He sees the suffering. He sees the groaning. He sees the crying out. He knew, he heard, remembered, he saw, and nothing has changed here in chapter 32. Up to this point, chapter 32, God's dealing with Israel's failures have in every way demonstrated his patience and his long suffering to them. You remember they started to grumble once they're in the wilderness, right? They started to get thirsty from the travel, a real need. And they came to a place called Mara, and the water was bitter. And they go, oh, man, the water's bitter and grumbling and complaining. And God, in his miraculous way, turns that water into sweet water to bring satisfaction to the people. And then they move off to a place called Elam, where there's these wonderful oasis and fruitfulness from the trees that are there. And then we find them in chapter 16, grumbling once again in the wilderness because they have no food. And yet God provides bread from heaven, manna from heaven. And then they grumble again in chapter 17 because they have no water. They're at Rephidim now. And once again, God graciously provides water from the rock. But there comes a point when God's long suffering turns to wrath and anger. And these people have failed test after test after test. And God had taught them a lesson after lesson after lesson. You ever feel like that? As a parent? As a teacher? Maybe even as a a friend. And now their final exam is here and they fail miserably again. They're They're not walking across the stage graduating. That's not happening here. They failed their final exams. So he gives both his verdict and his judgment. Here's the verdict. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That's a lot of things you shouldn't say to someone. The expression stiff-necked comes from the world of farming, where a farmer would place a yoke over uh, the neck of his animal so that he could plow a field or pull a cart or something like that. But the animal is stubborn and stiffens his neck and refuses to go in the direction the farmer wants him to go, but instead heads where it wants to go. Such an animal is not useful to a farmer. If that animal continues to do that, that animal will find itself going to a place where they make glue. This is the picture, my friends, God is saying, I have graciously and powerfully led Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, but they continue to be stubborn and have rejected my word and guidance. There is only one thing left to do. And it's a reminder to us, friends. That God calls all of his people to willingly take his yoke on their shoulders and to humbly Follow his lead and his voice and his guidance. And when we do so, we will find his, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But if we refuse to listen to his word, if we reject his guidance, in other words, if we become stiff-necked, then we will no longer be useful to him. Now, we know stiff-necked people, don't we? That's just the reality. Some of them are our neighbors. Some of them are our co-workers. Many of them are our friends, past and present. Some are even in our family. They're our children. They're our parents. They're our spouses. And if we're honest, we often find him or her looking back at us in the mirror. We don't have to look too far to find stiff-necked people. And all who are stiff-necked have chosen to turn away from God in some way shape or form and ultimately are corrupting themselves why because if they're rejecting God they're embracing something else and so they're worshipping other gods or at best they're seeking to worship God while at the same time trying to worship these other gods and syncretizing it together this is his verdict they are a stiff necked people and now notice his judgment now Now let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And what we read here might surprise us. We might be shocked at what God is saying here. God's judgment is burning hot wrath so as to consume the people. But the expression that my wrath may burn hot against them, literally says in the Hebrew, so that my nose may glow red or become hot against them. It's an idiom. It's a picture. It's a figure of speech. It's a strange expression. But you know what? We, we do know the idea uh, of, of burning from the, the Hebrew culture It's 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 a this nose burning is an expression that that means you are angry. And friends, it's important to note because we know that God is also long-suffering, and the word long-suffering is another idiom very similar to this. Literally, means God is long of nostrils. To be long of nostrils means that God is; He takes deep breaths. You know what I'm talking about. Someone is not behaving well. Someone is being stubborn. Someone is being rebellious. And you, as a parent or as a friend or whatever, you say, I am going to be long-suffering. I'm going to go... I'm going to exercise patience. So this is where this picture comes from. It all has to do with the nose of God. All right, there's a little trivia for you, right? You can take that one with you. God is patient. He's patient. He takes deep breaths when we're disobedient, when we sin against Him, when we fail the test, and it takes time for the redness of God's nose or to reach His nose, that anger to reach His nose. Now, Because of Israel's behavior and blasphemy, the Lord says, it is time for my nose to get red. It's time for my nose to burn hot against these people. So here's the picture. The picture is of a loving, patient God who's put up with Israel's sinfulness over and over and over And over again. And although his nostrils are long, his nose is getting hot with anger, and he is ready to consume them. He's ready to destroy them with his wrath. Now, please understand this God is not somehow passively blowing his top. His response is deliberate, it's well reasoned, it's temperate, it's determined. It is just. And we should always be thankful for God's long-suffering towards us, friends. He truly is patient. He truly is gracious when we're sinful, when we're stubborn, when we're rebellious. Our sin truly deserves the disciplinary action of the Lord. So yes, God is long-suffering, but we are not to presume upon it. We're not to count on it being God's obligation to us. That's the verdict. I am going to consume them with my hot wrath. Now we move into the appeal. And this really is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. You say, the bulk of our time? I thought we already had a bulk of time. Well, this is really this is where, where everything's driving to. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I watch, you know, shows on TV or some movies and stuff like that. But there's sometimes when there's a movie or a show on uh, that I, I just kind of like want to talk to the TV kind of in loud ways. Right. You know, what I'm talking about you ever do that. And, 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 and sometimes there are things that happen, certain circumstances, I'm just like what? And no, this is no, you know, screenwriters have this habit. That when an evil person finally captures or corners that person that they've been trying to kill or destroy or finally get rid of, rather than squeeze the trigger on the gun or drive the sword through their belly, what do they do? They start talking for like five to ten minutes they start going through the reason I'm going to get so much joy and gratification from killing you today is because when I was younger you did this and you caused my family to have this happen and this happen and this happen and they go on and on and on and of course while they're going on and on and on you know special forces are coming in they're surrounding or whatever and they end up coming in and killing this person or stopping the, the thing it's like why didn't they just finish the job and stop talking that's all part of laying out a story and tension. But have you noticed that? Those evil people, they just go on and on and they, they, I've got to tell you why. Rather than just doing the job, right? And so we might be tempted to think as we come here, having already looked at what God has said in this passage, that there's something similar going on. Not that God is evil, because his, his verdict is just, We have to wonder, why is God speaking so much to Moses about Israel's blatant idolatry and blasphemy? If he's just, why doesn't he just pour out his wrath? Why talk about it? Why not just do it and be done with it? Is he just filling all the details of Israel's sinfulness and telling Moses how wicked they are and how much they deserve God's burning wrath to consume them simply for justifiable effect? As if Moses needs to say, yeah, you're right. You should go ahead and do that. Or is something else going on? Now, of course, with that question, you know in my mind, I'm saying there's something else going on. What is it that God is seeking to accomplish here? What is he driving at? A closer look at this text points to the fact that God is seeking to accomplish something with all these words. And I would propose to you, That this whole conversation is designed to test Moses. God had tested Israel, but they had failed miserably. Now God tests Moses to find out what kind of mediator he would be. Let's reflect a little bit on this text together. You may have noticed there are some things that I haven't even addressed that are in the text. And you're like, Pastor Ra, that's really unusual. How come you didn't deal with these things? There's a reason, because I want to deal with them now. Notice, as we begin in this section, God says, Moses, you go down to your people. In chapter 3 and verse 7, here's what we find. God is, throughout the book of, of Exodus, referring to Israel as my people. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And repeatedly Moses, when he's standing before Pharaoh speaking for God, says this, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But now he turns to Moses and says, these are your people. These are your people you delivered. Your people have corrupted themselves. Your people have turned away. Your people have made a golden calf and worshipped it. These are your people, and they are your problem. Secondly, God says, Moses, leave me alone. Now you might say, is God just being one big baby up in heaven? No, there's something going on here. He says, leave me alone so I can consume Israel with my wrath. In other words, I am determined to bring judgment on them. I am justified in bringing judgment. So leave me alone so that I can do what I need to do. I'm done with them. My patience has run out. Now imagine, if you would please, that you are um, a father and you get a phone call from the high school principal saying, you need to come to the school. I need to talk to you about your son. And when you arrive, you find your son in the principal's office. And you go in, and the principal informs you that your son has done something that will likely result in suspension, potentially expulsion. It involves the police. And he's also brought great shame on your family name. And you look your son in the eye. And you ask him, son, did you do all these things that the principal says you did? And he stubbornly shakes his head and says yes. And when you're done with the principal and you leave and you get into the car, the drive home is thick. With period verbal spasms, you say things like, I can't believe you would be so foolish. How many times have we told you to avoid that place and those people? You're in big trouble. Your mother is not going to be happy at all. It's interesting that the mother is always the final authority in these things, right? And when you get home, you send your son to his room, and you go and find your wife, and you begin to share with her all that has happened, and you are angry Justly because your son's behavior and because of his smugness and as you talk your anger grows and you start saying that's it he's grounded for a year don't tell me you've never said that all right. I'm I'm taking his phone, I'm taking his laptop, I'm taking his PlayStation, I'm taking his iPad, I'm taking out his bed and his pillow and his swivel chair. I'm not paying for his college or helping him with a car. In fact, I'm going to throw him out. I'm going to throw him out. He's not living here anymore. I'm done with him. And your wife is standing there very concerned and shocked at your response and you walk toward his room saying, let me alone he deserves this he had this coming and your wife because she is godly and she knows that although your words are a real threat that they're also an invitation an invitation for your wife to say honey you have every right to be angry Our son has behaved very sinfully and foolishly. And he does deserve stiff consequences. But can we show a little mercy? Now friends, Israel's guilty. Israel deserves God's wrath. There's no question about it. But what will Israel's mediator do here's the third thing God says Moses I will make a great nation of you when, when we're done when I'm done pouring out my wrath on these people I'm going to make a great nation where you are going to be the father of that nation Israel's been unfaithful and I've been patient long enough they did not listen. They're always grumbling and complaining. They're not thankful. But you, Moses, you've listened to me. You've served me faithfully. You would make a great leader and a father of my nation. Now, friends, you see what's going on here. God is, by his words, distancing himself from Israel and warming himself toward Moses. So how will Israel's mediator respond? Psalm 106, if you remember, is a record of the history of Israel. And in there, we find in verse 23 what the record says Moses does. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Here's what I'm wanting to convey to you this morning. That all of God's words here, being poured out, are are just, they're right, they're true. But they're also testing Moses to find out, is he going to be Israel's mediator or not? They're actually words to invite him to do something. On behalf of his people that he is mediating for. So the answer is Moses, the mediator, stands in the breach to intercede for the people. Now I want you to notice it is a mediating prayer. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God. Implored its not the kind of word we typically use in our language. But if there's ever an example of someone coming boldly before God, it is here. Moses implored the Lord. The idea here is that Moses approaches the face of God to appease him, to plead with him. To pacify and to soothe him. What boldness is this prayer. As Moses now comes to speak face to face with God. There was perfect liberty for him to do that. He was the mediator here. There's no hindrance. There's no obstacle. Moses comes in boldly to the very face of God. And speaks to appease the face of divine displeasure. And friends. How imperfect even this picture is. When we think of that mediator that belongs to us. If, if Moses had the ear of God, how much more our intercessor, Christ Jesus, has the ear of the Father. He has the, the face. He goes to the face of the Father and he pleads with him. Christ, our high priest, intercedes for us. God hears the cries of his Son. He sees the face of his Son as our Savior appears And he comes before representing his people. And it's worth being reminded that Jesus, as our high priest, goes before the Father with our names on his shoulders and over his heart. He's that high priest, remember. And his mediation is a personal and sacrificial mediation. It is a mediated prayer. Secondly, it's an unselfish prayer. A lesser man would be tempted to become a father of a nation. You see the little temptation that God threw out there. When I'm done with them, I'm going to make a nation with you as the father. A lesser man would have embraced that. He would have seen Israel's destruction as a wonderful opportunity to be the father of a great people. Imagine me, the father of a nation. But Moses will have none of that. He so loved his people that their welfare became more important than his self-advancement. It testifies to the genuineness of the motive of his prayer and the sincerity of his prayer, completely setting himself aside that God might do something for his people and friends, it reaches its climax in verse 32 of this chapter. I'm going to begin reading at verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not please blot me out of your book that you have written. So the choice is be a father of a nation or God blot me out for the sake of these people. Moses unselfishly identifies with these people. He becomes willing to perish with them. And there's a union that Moses establishes with the people. If you remember the expression in 1 Corinthians verse 10 or chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul is, is giving the account of the events of Israel in the wilderness that we talked about just a, a little bit early, We pass by a phrase. We don't think it's necessarily that significant. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. They were baptized into Moses. They were united with Moses. He identifies with them. There's an inseparable connection between the people and Moses and friends. Does it not remind us of an inseparable union and connection that we have with our high priest who is one with us. In John chapter 17, the the high priestly prayer, uh, there are are shades and themes through that prayer where, where Christ is basically saying this, they are mine and I am yours. We are united together in this. And he pleads for his people. In John chapter 15, we hear Christ is the vine and that we are the branches again, a picture of this inseparable union that we have with Christ. The Apostle Paul, in particular, in the epistles, many of them talks about being in Christ and Christ being in us. In particular, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in uh, in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created In Christ Jesus for good works. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, talking about the Gentiles, who once were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The point here is is that the Apostle Paul is talking to Christians and saying, Christ is in you. You are in him. You are inseparably linked. So we have a high priest in heaven who is one with us, who pleads our case, who pleads our cause before the Lord but it's also a well-reasoned prayer. Moses doesn't excuse their sin. He acknowledges their sin, but he does not make any excuse for the people. He's not, he doesn't speak like we often speak or think like we often think. Well, you, know, you have to understand the, the pressure we were under there. You know, Moses was gone for a while, and we didn't know what to do. And, you know, you know. It's just a quirk of their personality. You know, it's not really sin. It's just kind of a quirk, you know. It was just one small mistake. So he doesn't make excuses for the people, but he reminds the Lord of three things. He anchors his appeal on three grounds. Ground number one, God's adoption. And here's where he now is throwing it back, so to speak. And he's doing this in an appeal, in an intercessory appeal. He says... O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? He's appealing in his prayer to God's adoption. He's saying, Yahweh, they, they, they may be faithless, they may be grumbling, they may be impatient idolaters who are corrupt and turn away from your truth, but they're your people. You brought them up out of Egypt. You chose them. You saved them. You delivered them. They belong to you. They are yours. And they are the people you redeemed. And friends, isn't that what Christ has done for us? 1 John chapter 2, we read, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So like Moses Jesus is our righteous advocate with the Father. He stands face to face with the Father and intercedes for us. And we also read and continue in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, where it says He is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, something happened for him to be able to stand before the Father and say, Look, I'm advocating based on something. I'm advocating based on my blood. It's a well-reasoned prayer. So it begins with adoption. Secondly, God's honor. What will Egypt think about your reputation if you consume Israel? This is logical. You took all this time to expose the emptiness and the impotence of Egypt's gods when you confronted them with the plagues. You declared yourself to be the I am, that I am, the sovereign and self-sustaining creator of the world. You demonstrated your might and your power in bringing Israel out of Egypt, out from the yoke of their slavery and parting the walls, or the waters, I should say, of the Red Sea. You demonstrated to the world that you are the one true God to be feared and worshipped. They know who you are because they have seen and heard of you through the work you have done for your people. So Yahweh, if you go through with your wrath, your enemies will rejoice. If you go through with this, they will scoff at you and they will see this as an opportunity for self-glorification. They will think of you as just another God like all the other nations. That's fickle, that's changeable, that's not to be trusted. But don't Deliver Israel for the sake of these people, but for your own glory. Your honor, your glory, your name, your reputation is at stake. This is Moses coming to God and saying, this is, this is who you are. So God's adoption, God's honor, God's finally God's covenant, he brings up the covenant. Moses now takes God back to the promise of the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he says that it is a covenant that you swore by your own self. Now, if we're going to swear on something, we swear on our mother's grave, which is not a good thing to do, but we, people do that, right? You hear that. We swear on the Bible. What, the reason we do that is because we want to, we want to swear on something. Well, so when people do. They want to swear on something that is holy, that is sacred, that is greater than them. But there's nothing greater than God. (laughs) So he swears by his own self that he is going to keep this promise, this covenant. Hey, God, I thought you made a promise. I thought that you swore that you would keep this promise. For how long? Well, look and see what it says. I will multiply your offspring and the stars of heaven and all this land and I have promised and I will give your offspring and they shall inherit it for how long? Forever. This doesn't sound like forever. This is not what you said. This is not who you are. This is not your covenant. So he's appealing now to these three aspects, these three areas. God's adoption of these people. Secondly, God's honor, his character. And third, his covenant. And ultimately, friends, this is an effective prayer, isn't it? Because look at verse 14. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord relented. Now, we must not read that and think to ourselves... So apparently God doesn't know the future. Or God is fickle and he changes his plans. No, our understanding of the character of God must drive our understanding of what we read here. God is sovereign and is always working his plan. God doesn't change. In fact, God was completely and utterly in control here and his plan hadn't changed at all. The very thing that God had planned through this test was this response by Moses. Moses is not trying to talk God into something he doesn't want to do himself. No, he was telling God exactly what he wanted to hear. In the end, God did what he intended to do from the beginning. He answered the prayer of the mediator who had appointed, or whom he had appointed, by saving the people he had chosen from all eternity. So what we have here is what's called, big word, an anthropopathism. We're not going to all try to say that together, okay? Now you may have heard of an anthropomorphism. It's a much more common expression. And anthropomorphism talks about the fact that God is spirit, but when he speaks to us, he wants us to be able to relate to him, so he uses the imagery, the physical imagery of man in particular, to describe his behavior. So God God writes things with his finger. He uses his strong arm. He puts his foot on the neck of his enemies, right? Or he is long of nostrils, right? He's giving us the ability to comprehend him using those physical descriptions. And anthropopathism is very similar, but instead of physical attributes, God uses human emotions and attitudes that we understand. So when God says he is Angry, we comprehend that because we get angry. When God says, I'm going to pour out my wrath, we understand that because we understand what wrath looks like. Okay? So Moses, here, seeing Israel's wickedness and God's just wrath, steps in to intercede based on God's character and his word, and he reminds God of his character, he reminds God of his covenant. But it's not as if God had forgotten, because God never forgets, does he? To forget is passive. You don't know when you've forgotten. But God chooses not to remember. Those are two separate things. He always remembers. Now, I want to just finish up with, with three closing thoughts. We're kind of driving and applying now this whole thing. First of all, I want us to consider, as we reflect over this text, the danger of being stiff-necked. The danger of being stiff-necked. A stiff-necked person is a person who refuses to lower their heads and wear the yoke of obedience to Christ. What I'm going to say next comes, uh, most of it comes from Philip Ryken, Describing a stiff necked person. And he does it well, so that's why I'm using it. He says, they always think that they're right and never admit that they're wrong. They refuse to listen to good spiritual counsel. They say, I'm sorry, that's just the way I am. And they expect everyone else to deal with it. They ask for advice, but they don't follow it. They go ahead and do what they want Um, What they were planning on doing anyway. And and when they get in trouble, they're unwilling to be corrected. Yes, they say, but my situation is different. And then they offer some kind of excuse. When they go through suffering, they complain about it. But they never seem to learn anything from it. They never change. They never grow. And the saddest thing of all is that they don't even know it. Since they never bow in true submission to God, they don't realize how stiff-necked they are. Instead, friends, we, we do all we can, we should do all we can to avoid being stiff-necked. So always assume that you might be wrong, and when you are wrong, admit it. If you ask for counsel from someone in spiritual authority, try following Listen when, God, uh, when, when people correct you, especially if what they're saying makes you angry. That might be a sign that there is some truth to what they're saying. Learn from God through suffering. Pursue spiritual transformation by spending time in prayer and the word. Wear the yoke of Christ with glad submission. I'm sure there's more that we could say here. We would do well to listen and pay attention to this counsel. To be thankful for God's long-suffering. And to be humbled by the fact that Christ intercedes as our advocate before the Father. Now, friends, we could look out there and we could identify stiff-necked people. But here we want to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, when are we stiff-necked? And what should we do with it? Secondly, I think this passage helps us to be praying for the stiff neck. See, Moses cared for the stiff neck, and so should we. He cared about these people. And a big part of our, our intercession is simply caring for people. Loving your neighbor as yourself. You pray for those you care about. If you don't care about people you won't be praying for them. So Moses cared for the stiff neck. Moses also believed that prayer could change things. So should we. Now from our perspective, it's change. From God's perspective, it's all part of his plan. we got to kind of wrestle with that. Because we might think to ourselves, well, if God is sovereign, why should I bother praying? But what this text should teach us is that our genuine heartfelt prayer for the ones you love is part of God's sovereign plan. He wants us to pray. He works through our prayers. That's exactly what was happening here. He wanted Moses to come boldly to the throne of grace and appeal for his people based on what God has already said and based on his character and based on his covenant friends, that helps us because Moses intercedes for them, not based on his feelings for them, but based on who he who God is and what God has said. And so should we. Now, in other words, we might be tempted to appeal to God because these people are so dear to us. There are friends, there are family members, there are coworkers, the person who attends church with us. We love them. We struggle with the pain and the heartache because they're of their continued uh, stiff-necked character and relationship to God. And certainly it's right to have those feelings. but what we feel is not the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is God's character and His promises. Moses doesn't go before God and say, God, these people are my people. And you know how much I love them. I don't know what I would do if they're taken away, if you consume them, so please don't do that. He's not not rooting his prayer in how he feels. He's rooting his prayer in who God is and what God has said. Now, it may be true that we feel love for stiff-necked people, and we should, but God doesn't act simply based on our He acts in accordance with his character and his revealed word. So just like Moses, we come before God reminding him of what he has done and what he has promised. So here's what our prayers might look like. Lord, for your honor and glory and as a trophy of your grace, would you restore that wayward child? See, this, this, is a, this is a God issue. This is not a my feeling issue. This is a God issue. God, Lord, display your great power. Would you heal this diseased body? It's not because, oh, wow, you know, I was a part of that. I made the prayer. It's about God, who is the creator of the universe, acting according to his will. Lord, as a testimony to your loving kindness, would you forgive their rebellious ways? Would you heal their broken marriage? Would you do it, Lord? Lord, that your name would be glorified on the earth, would you please do these things that we're asking? So the point here is that we're not just praying based on our feelings, we're praying based on who God is and what God has said. And we leave it with him. That doesn't mean we abandon our feelings because we bring our feelings into it, but the ultimate basis of our prayer is God and his character and his word. So friends, this is helpful for us because we have stiff-necked friends or family members. Finally, there's the danger of being stiff-necked There's the prayer for the stiff-necked and this find the comfort for the stiff neck. Now friends, we need to get the picture here. All that we're reading here is taking place up on the mountain while Israel is celebrating their idolatry at the foot of the mountain. In other words, Israel has no idea that their mediator is going boldly before the Father and pleading for them that God's wrath would not consume them. There they are, playing away, worshiping a calf, indulging in immorality, sinning, blasphemy. And up on the mountain, Moses is boldly standing before the Father and pleading for these wicked, sinful people. And friends, although we don't see it happening, that is exactly what Christ does for us day after day After day before the throne of God, he pleads with the father to withhold his wrath based on his relationship with us as children, based on his glory and honor, based on his covenant sealed by the shedding of Christ's blood. And so while we still wander, while we drift, while we struggle, while we sin and, and we commit idolatry, while we pursue our sinful and selfish desires, we have Christ, our mediator, who lovingly cares to intercede for us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands. No tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. In other words, there's, there's nothing that man can say to accuse me. Because he is there as my mediator. And all that's happening and you don't see it. But oh, how we want to function by our feelings. When God gives us the truth that should sustain us, that should strengthen us, that should feed us, that should nurture us out of our sinfulness and cry out for mercy. Lord, help us today. Help us to learn from a text like this, Lord what we are really like. Oh, Lord, it's so easy for us to to get to the place where we think, you know, we're really not that bad. Oh, but Lord, you are just in your condemnation. You are just in the promise of the exercise of your wrath to those who will not bow the knee who stiffen their neck toward you. And Lord, you're just even in your children who turn aside, who stiffen their necks to in some area of their life, you are just to bring discipline. And yet, Lord, all the while you are going before the Father. You're pleading for us, your people. Not the base, not based on anything that we have done, but based on what you have done, shedding your blood for us. Help us to be in awe of your intercessory mediatorial work before the Father on our behalf. And although we don't see it, Lord, may it anchor us, to you and to the truth of your word to help us to live every day in such a way that we are humble, that we're thankful, that we are gracious, that we're becoming more like Christ, that we, in turn, as your children, plead before you for others that we know that are stiff-necked, who are stubborn, who are stubborn, against you. For many of us, Lord, when we think about that, we think of our children who have wandered. We think about uh, maybe spouses or, or siblings. We think about friends who are no longer humbling themselves before you. Lord, we need to be reminded that you hear the prayers of your saints. But Lord, this is all because of the fact that you have shed your blood on our behalf. We praise you, Lord. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Give us boldness to come before you and plead. We ask in your precious holy name.